Columbia Technology Ventures presents Obama's Startup Nation, perspectives on catalyzing innovation inside and outside the government, featuring panelists Javier Hughes, Cheryl Martin, and Javier Sade, recorded on March 4, 2016 at Columbia University. For more information, visit techventures.columbia.edu. What we're going to do is we're going to talk about broadly about innovation, entrepreneurship, technology in the United States. We're going to do some policy. We're going to do some private sector. You're going to get three very interesting perspectives here. And we're going to telescope. We're going to probably fly at 35,000 feet and then bring it down, maybe not to 10 feet, but maybe to 1,000 feet and keep it that way. Um, my, uh, I'm an engineer by training. I spent uh, the first five years of my career in a pharmaceutical company making drugs and diagnostic tests. Then I consulted for two firms, Booz Allen and McKinsey. And then that's kind of the first half of my career. Second half of my career, uh, I spent as a venture capitalist, a private equity person, and I worked at a hedge fund. And I basically invested in companies, private and public. Uh, I started three companies, uh, one in solar energy, one in media and entertainment, and one in uh, branding strategy agency. One success, one failure, one sideways. So that's about right. Um, and when I got the reach out, I think the, the, one of the things that the president wanted to do with his second term was to bring talented people from all walks of life, meaning more women, more minorities, and uh, uh, without obviously uh, sacrificing the, the skills and the price of admission, but we have a very diverse country. We're not going to talk about politics here, although if there's a politics question, leave it till the end. Uh, I'm sure some of us, uh, well, I'm going to start talking about politics. I don't want to talk about politics. Um, so um, I ran, and the last thing I'll say, and then I'll pass it on to my fellow panelists. Uh, I was hired to run the Office of Investment and Innovation at the SBA. And I ran, essentially, a fund of funds with about $26 billion in assets in which we lent money to venture capital firms to invest in small businesses. Um, and I ran the SBIR and STTR program, which are essentially uh, a slice of the federal R&D budget set aside for small businesses to participate in essentially what, what's essentially seed money for technology across the board. And another program I ran was the Growth Accelerator Fund, in which we funded accelerators, incubators, shared office spaces, innovation ecosystems around the country we funded about 138 of them. And then I was involved in a lot of uh, uh, committees from uh, the Securities and Exchange Commission on crowdfunding to clean energy investing. But we have a much better person to talk about that here. Rural investing. I was one of the biggest voices and continue to be on impact investing in social entrepreneurship. Um, so very happy to be here. And I'll pass it on to Cheryl. Awesome. Excited to be here. Um, so the reason I'm actually on campus occasionally is I'm a non-resident fellow over at the Columbia and uh, SEPA as the, the clean energy piece of SEPA. So Jason Bordoff's um, organization is about four years old, I think, if I'm right. There. So if any of you are associated with that. But um, so, yeah, um, I spent, I have a weird career, I think, as well. I spent 20 years in the chemical industry. My PhD is in organic chemistry. I went into chemistry as a chemist. Um, I always ask the question about what, how do people use what we're making? 
And so that's kind of been the trajectory of my career. I went from research to research management to marketing. Uh, I ran investor relations. I ran financial planning in the company. I ran uh, two businesses. Last one was about a half a billion dollars based out of Geneva, Europe, Middle East, and Africa. Um, and went from there when we were bought by Dow Chemical to Kleiner Perkins. Um, I figured getting to know the smaller company side of things and understanding that whole piece. I ran a startup for them that still exists um, so far um, in the clean tech space doing um, forming sugars that you could make other chemicals, um, low cost sugars. And uh, while I was there, my story of how I got into the administration was um, one day the phone rang and I had um, on the other end was someone saying, will you take a call with the Secretary of Energy? I don't know if you guys get calls from the secretaries or not, but I do not. So I said, of course. And he's like, would you come in? Um, RPE had just been, I mean, it was invented and uh, under the Bush administration, but not funded until the Recovery Act. And when they got real budget funding, which we could have a whole seminar on uh, appropriations processes, but we won't, um, they wanted to go after the <coughs> dual mission of RPE, the development and deployment of transformational energy technology. So RPE is the DARPA for energy. So even though it's only seven years old, I think the ultimate metric is, well, we have invented anything as significant as the internet and stealth bomb, tech, stealth technology 50 years from now. So we've got a few years to go. So I went in. Um, at the time, a partner at Kleiner was Al Gore. I said, um, sir, the, the secretary has called, and I've never thought about government. What do I do with this offer? He said, well, I only have two pieces, uh, two questions. Um, do you have authority, and do you have money? And I said, I think so. He's like, then you owe it to your country. And at that moment, you have to say yes, because you cannot tell the vice president that, sorry, sir, I, I can't. So um, I went to RPE uh, for three years. They have special hiring authority. Three years, 1,000 days to make a difference. And um, during that time, I went from running the technology to market program, which thinks about how do I take transformational technology, these moonshot kind of ideas, and bring the private sector in early on to think about moving it forward beyond our funding. Uh, RPE's put $1.5 billion into the market in six years. And uh, just the other day announced that over 30 companies that they've funded have brought in over $1.2 billion in follow-on. So not bad, given that's only the public money, the, the publicly disclosed money. Um, when my 1,000 days were up, um, I was running the agency the last two years, and I've been consulting with the state of New York. But just last week, I actually took a new job that I'll start next month, heading up the business side of the World Economic Forum. And so the whole question of how and why do we solve complex world problems looking at it from both a private sector as well as a public sector side and give what I believe strongly, we've lost the space in the world to have the critical conversations among parties where they need to sit and understand each other and not have every question that they parse be immediately out into a judgmental public space. So, uh, so look forward to this dialogue. Javier. I am not as impressive. Um, <laughs> I'm, You're still in the administration, yeah, so you are yeah. all impressive to me. So, well, I'm, um, so I'm currently the Chief Innovation Officer at the United States Department of Labor. Um, I've been there since 2010, so June 21st, 2010. It's uh, those days you don't forget. When you, when you join the administration, it's your first time around, you just, you don't forget that date. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting date, it's, a, it's full of pride. Um, I was, and I'll talk a little bit about myself in a second, but 
how did I end up there? Um, I didn't work in the campaign. Um, I didn't donate, N not in the first term. Uh, Re-election I did, you can see it on the internet. <laughs> um, but I, I did it, I was too focused on my work and I never thought that I was going to work for uh, this administration, for this president, for the Department of Labor. I had no idea what the Department of Labor did. Um, I didn't understand it. Um, and then one day I got a phone call and it was from the Deputy Secretary of Labor, Seth Harris, and who's a dear friend and a mentor of mine now. Um, he's like a second dad. And he said, hey, I, I got a recommendation from someone about you. Um, I know you're doing uh, weapon systems supply chain work right now, but I have something that'll be a little bit more fun and less serious and probably less tragic. Uh, you know, and would you be interested? And I had to really um, think about it, and initially I said no. I said, really cool idea, but absolutely not. Um, I'm, I'm, and as we're being honest here, I'm, I'm just leaving way too much wealth on the table. And then I spoke to my now wife, and she said, you're an idiot you're gonna quit and you're gonna join the administration because you're never going to have this opportunity again. And I said, you're absolutely right. That's why I'm marrying you. So, <laughs> so I did that. I joined and it's the best job I've ever had in my life. Uh, I doubt that I will have a better job in my, in my life. And uh, it's something that I encourage each and every single one of you uh, to do if you get that opportunity, if you get that call, you get that email, text message, tweet, uh, quick Snapchat, whatever you want to use, just do it. Uh, in, in any capacity, you don't need to be a chief innovation officer. You don't need to be someone doing big time you know, clean energy work or someone doing you know, small business funding on, or you know, moving pieces here and there. Just contribute. Um, and it doesn't matter what party you're part of. Just contribute, give back to your country. So, um, now that I have the, you know, the little story out, how did I get here um, and what did I used to do? Um, different story. Um, I was out of school by the time I was 16. Um, I took a GED uh, out of high school. Um, by the, um, when I was 16, I said, this is not for me. Um, I, I, I'm a self-taught coder. So I was, it was the, the, the beginning of the internet as we know it, Yahoo being a really big player back then, Netscape Navigator, all these things, and, and I knew how to code. So I knew Java, I knew HTML, and self-taught, and I started making websites for people and databases, and I started making money. And I said, I'm not gonna waste my time with this other stuff. So I'm gonna, uh, like the entrepreneurial spirit came out really quickly. My mom freaked out. Um, I did it, and I said, I'm just going for it. And I started my own business, and um, eventually s saved enough to not only take care of her, but also pay for my own school. And I attended University of Miami, and from there, it just we started with a whole collection of different jobs. I, uh, you know, I, I traveled with President Clinton for a couple of years, uh, doing advance, out of all things. I, uh, I was the deputy uh, head of communications for Miami-Dade County, working for their county mayor. Um, I did uh, a ton of supply chain work and product development across Central um, and uh, South America, and, um, and fell in love with it, making that, 
the, you know, creating a fusion of you know the supply chain, traditional supply chain with technology and technology including RFID, passive and active, and uh, and then from there consulting. Um, did a lot of consulting uh, for for defense, for homeland security, and uh, and then for uh, the commercial sector, and then I got the call. So they uh, they told me you can uh, you can have whatever role you want as long as it's a chief innovation officer role that doesn't exist. And um, I I took it. I created my own position description, and here I am. Well, my head's spinning right now. That this is incredible. Just because you hear just this is just three people uh, out of a couple million that work in the federal government with very different paths. So the takeaway here is that and we're gonna to get to the, the question in a second, but that um, there's all kinds of pathways because the government and its agencies uh, serve uh, all fields of endeavor. So you care about social justice, if you care about energy, if you care about innovation, if you care about small business, there's always gonna be a job for you and there's two paths to, there's all kinds of paths to do that. And this president has, has done a lot of innovative ways to bring people that are not your typical, uh, hopefully you're not typical government worker, because one of the problems in government is that you end up with uh, sometimes dead weight. Um, and how do you get people that are uh, ambitious and have the world is their oyster opportunity? How do you get them in? So um, uh, a question, kind of a jumble to each, and I'm gonna uh, give you 30 seconds each to answer. What has made this presidential, this president's innovation agenda so different than others? Is it because Snapchat and mobile and there's all these things happening that, well, by consequence, you're gonna get pulled? Or has this administration been purposely and overtly pursuing innovation? Cheryl. Um, well, I think can speak to it most clearly from energy, but I think it is because in the case of energy, it came in as such a sweeping part of the agenda to start with, mm -hmm. right, with funding things like RPE, the Recovery Act, right? So Recovery Act had a lot of different aspects, some of which have worked really well, others, others not as well, but it was about how do you put capital at work to, in a very dire point to, to move the economy and jobs and everything else where it needs to go on the upswing, right? That was the idea in that, there were a lot of pieces of it, I think, that spurred further innovation and brought in a lot of people to manage those processes that weren't in it. So I think when those people were all in the administration thinking about things, they started suggesting stuff. So we've got things like Mission Innovation, which is the most recent announcement by the administration um, as part of COP um, out of Paris, if everybody in the, in the November, right, COP in Paris, the, the Climate Accord. Um, was the commitment by the United States as well as, I don't know, 15, 20, uh, a whole bunch of nations to double their budgets um, focused on, on energy and climate change innovation uh, alongside a commitment um, by a bunch of the world's most well-to-do uh, private sector citizens to put funding at work as well. I think that was the culmination of a lot of efforts, but it's saying we must innovate these world, these world, world challenges are very significant. Um, so I think by necessity coming in and seeing that we need this momentum to carry forward in something as specific as climate change carried through a lot of it. And then I think there's been a lot of threads going through other departments and, uh, and certainly the SBA in this manner. But I think the second term has been particularly strong in this, uh, in this effort to move entrepreneurship and broad scale funding for it, 
moving forward. So Javier, you, you are uh, at the personification of an overt authority to create a job as the chief innovation officer. Mm -hmm. So what, what the hell do you do? <laughs> oh, man. Uh, okay, so. 30 seconds. Third, no, no, you're killing me. Uh, so uh, what do I do? So uh, a typical day? Uh, typical or, you what know. Have you what have you done? Okay, what have we done? So look, um, you talk about the administration, how their definition of innovation and, and um, disruption, I'll include that word in there. Um, there is the, the traditional work that government has been doing for a very, very long time, and government gets a really bad reputation, but they actually do tremendous work. And the career government of, uh, worker, the traditional gov government worker does a tremendous amount of work. Um, now, what I was told is go in um, and disrupt in a healthy manner. Um, disrupt things that, that require um, a, a healthy disruption, but we need cultural buy-in. And in order to have cultural buy-in, you first need to build a culture, right? So the culture is the hardest thing that, that, you, that you have to crack. So um, that has resulted in each and every single day focusing on multiple verticals. Uh, innovation as it relates to people, process, policy, technology, and data. And when it comes to you know, basic example data, because data is a really hot topic these days, data creating communities, data communities that are public facing for anyone and everyone to create new uh, industries, new economies, focusing on safety, on energy, on transportation, on uh, anything that you can imagine. And you folks know this very, very, very well. That didn't exist previously. It did, but it was static data. Now the data is live. Right. It's awesome. Guess what? It took a lot of work, a lot of headaches, a lot of migraines to get there. But it was that type of work Like we were told, we know this exists, but make it better, make it more interactive, make sure that the American people can actually benefit from it, grow with it, you know, start businesses with it. That type of spirit wasn't previously yeah. there. So I think it's both to your question, right? Mm -hmm. I think the fact that we could go in and create things like Green Button, where in mm -hmm. the Department of Energy, mm -hmm. you can go in and access all different kinds of energy efficiency data, actually public data and pull it out. And so people, they've had challenges to create apps. Oh, and in the White House, including who else they brought in, right? We've got a chief prize officer, I don't know, whatever yeah, they're well, called, right? To, yeah. What Kristen was doing, right? And uh, this whole idea of how do you put challenges out there, how do you engage people who aren't in government, who might have not had the opportunity to, to choose to be in yet, um, but making the data accessible because yeah. we could in a way that allowed um, people to get their heads around it. But I don't sure. think, it, and I think people were asked to be uncomfortable and make sure what, you know, that, that we were willing to test things. And there's a, there's a, I mean, you guys are bringing up something interesting which, uh, which is not dissimilar in the private sector, and that is that for you to make change, you have to take risk. And once you take risk, uh, you're, you're probably gonna break glass. Yeah. So the question is, are you comfortable right, breaking glass? And that's what entrepreneurs do, that's what leaders yeah. in the private sector do, and given some room to break glass, just as long as you're not breaking the entire shelf, right. uh, is a is yeah. a is an interesting uh, is an interesting uh, perspective in this America. You brought up the America Competes Act, which right now there's basically two ways in which the government used to, but now has another authority, uh, give money to the private sector grants um, and contracts. So either you buy stuff from the private sector, or you give you give grants. There's a third way, 
which is essentially cash prizes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting about the America Competes Act is that it's much more nimble, hence resembling the private sector, uh, to solve grand challenges from resolving the, the climate uh, problem to, uh, to curing cancer, the moon, Biden's moonshot. So I'm gonna switch it a little bit to sure. entrepreneurship because I, I saw a bunch of hands about entrepreneurship. Um, two out of every three net new jobs are created by small businesses in America and that has been the case for 25 years. Small businesses employ nine out of 10 people in the United States. Um, minorities of every form and women compared to the majority start businesses at a much faster and much higher rate than the general population. It's an important part of the innovation engine and entrepreneurial engine of America. What do you think, uh, you know, if you talk to hardcore private capital markets entrepreneurs, they say, I did this by myself. I didn't need any help. Yeah. <laughs> and then if you hear some other people, they'll say, well, without the backdrop of, for example, the government spending $140 billion in research and development, or creating the laws to allow for intellectual property to be protected. So that's, that's a statement, and this is the question. Can you talk about how policy marries with the private sector need to make money in a free market capital economy? And are they at odds? Cheryl, then Javier, same question. Um, no, I don't, think, I don't think they're at odds. I think, I think it's become a, a, politi a politicized conversation, right? I think there's places where, having come from 20 years in the private sector and run a budget with an with a R&D line in it, that you did the stuff that got you the products out the door for the next quarter, the next year or so. Right. You always ran out of money before you ran out of ideas in the private sector, right? We just didn't have that ability anymore to get that funding. And having sat at ARPA-E, there are ideas out there that are just so batshit crazy where you're like, no, like that's nuts. <laughs> but the idea of RPE was the whole concept, the whole question that I think is the role of government, if it works, will it matter? Right, and that's a really important piece to say, should the government be in there? Mm -hmm. Because if we can springboard forward the impossible to the plausible, then you start to accelerate private capital. Right? And so that's what we were trying to do at RPE, was to put the government money, three year, three million dollars out there, start these ideas. And I think important, under, uh, RPE was put under America's Competes, we could stop funding stuff. So if we started a project and it was out there a year and it wasn't working, we would shut it down. Like life is short, work on what matters. And that, I went on the hill a couple times to congressional panels and, I, and they were like, well, what, what about these things that have failed? And I'm like, what, those ones we stopped? They're like, yeah, those are your failures. I'm like, oh, no, no, it's only a failure if you keep doing it when you know it isn't working. And I think changing the vernacular of failure in the government and depoliticizing that has allowed us to have, I think, a much smoother conversation and, and be able to get out there, right? It's tougher when you get out there into loan programs, larger capital, as to exactly how and why the private sector and government play. So I don't know, that's my take. No, no, yeah. Look, the, in government, the days of if you build it, they will come are over. That's not, at least that's not how I do business. That's not how we do business. Uh, we don't just build things based on assumptions and then hope that people come and use them. 
we don't build mobile applications that way, we don't build platforms that way, we don't offer products and services in that way. Everything's measured and evaluated. It is. And before we actually produce something that's going to be public-facing, let's think of a digital product, we embrace the public and we ask, right? We inquire, is this of value? High value, mid-level value, low value, you know, you're batch crazy, right? So I'll skip it. So uh, the private sector. Yeah, yeah. So, so she can say it. I can't. But you also it, said it. It's a uh, uh, fine line. So, so there was. You see, it, it's a different day. It, it's a very, very different. And I don't think a lot of people know that. I think people think that we just get a budget and we just run with it. That's not true. It's actually, there's a tremendous amount of work that goes into the development of a budget and the execution of a budget and doing so much with so little. So that's one thing. Two, in relation to you know, America Competes Act and, and prices, I, I launched six national data initiatives um, or challenges over the past couple of years. I find great value in them, and, and they're really, really, really great. And for those that don't know what they are, just go to challenge.gov challenge.gov and challenge.gov is a fantastic portal okay that that captures all these existing available challenges data and non-data driven that you can participate in there are really mm -hmm. very little restrictions okay and and it helps to em embrace your ingenuity and in get in, in solving some of the biggest issues that we have right so that's uh, heavily powered by the white house's office of science and technology policy and then other groups us digital service and general services administration but you mentioned something that so, uh, some people might say, well, I did this and I did this all on my own. Whomever's telling you that is a lie. Yeah. No one's done it on their own. That's not true. America's too competitive. It's too big. There are too many people and too many people thinking the same thing, trying to solve the same issue. It's not true. The majority of startups that win and the majority of businesses that win, win because not only are they smart and have really highly trained people, but they also have established really great partnerships. Partnerships that help them succeed, partnerships that help them, you know, survive economic downturns, you know, partnerships that provide subject matter expertise where they didn't have them, right? Be it through a merger or an acquisition. Okay. And then lastly, when we talk about data, we talk about this this president, this administration creating, you know, uh, multiple new industries or even previous administrations, regardless, independent of party. I'm sure several of you uh, own an Xbox or a PlayStation, okay? I, I do. Call me the nerd in the room. But, and I've played video games. There's a video game, very popular video game called SSX, right? It's a snowboarding game. You can download it on your, on your phone. You can play a snowboarding game on your phone. Not right now. But not right now, okay? Because <laughs> we're recording, so just don't do it. But what do you think that the electronic arts, where do you think they got the mapping data from? They got the mapping data from the federal government for free. You know, where do you think all that GPS data is coming from? Google Maps, Waze, well now Waze is part of Google, but you know, and how MapQuest started up, that's federal. And that's taxpayer funded. And that kick-started a multi-billion multi dollar industries, okay, that did not exist. So when people say that taxpayer funded, um, exercises or, or your taxes that you pay don't fund stuff that then translates into like a 30x return, they just don't know. Because that's exactly what's happening across many areas. So, the, I mean, you're, you're, 
you're funding innovation to mm -hmm. advance the frontiers of human knowledge. And by advancing the frontiers of human knowledge, that creates jobs that are very high paying and competitive, which in turn puts this country in the place it's in, meaning the most competitive, innovative country in the world. But both, and this is what I heard from both of you, both sides, and this president, I think one of the, from my perspective, one of the things that this president has done really well is the value of public-private partnerships. Right. For every dollar I put out, I want four of private money because that validates it, right? Um, and uh, one, of, one of the programs I ran, the SBIC, uh, and I'll give you a very concrete example, Tesla. Tesla, uh, besides being what it was, was funded by a venture capital firm that borrowed money from, my, this is before my time, that borrowed money from one of the programs I used to run. Now, and they a loan made, program from DOE. There you go. They did the work. Elon Musk is a genius and an amazing businessman and technologist. And they, I don't have to tell you, he's one of the most respected innovators in the world. But without that venture capital firm having loans, pretty competitive and very cheap loans from the federal government, or this, he wouldn't have gotten there. So we, the government has a role and the private sector has a role. It's, a, it's symbiotic. It's symbiotic, yeah. Um, yeah. So let's, uh, let's talk a little bit more about uh, entrepreneurship. Uh, so it's obviously hot. What's happened, I mean, some people call it frothy, what's happened in Silicon Valley, the unicorn, you sort of the term unicorn. Yeah, you know, can you really have 150 companies that are worth more than a billion dollars when the time to market is 14 years, it used to be seven years to IPO. There's a disconnect definitely in the expectations and the fact that at the end of the day, the venture capital industry and all these industries, the way they work is not about investing the money, it's about getting out. So that said, because of data being made more available, because of the speed of innovation, because of a lot of congruence happening in fintech, who's heard of fintech, right? There's a lot of innovative uh, financial mechanisms to fund from crowdfunding to alternative peer-to-peer -peer lending to uh, social impact bonds that basically front run government writing a check if based on performance. So there's all this innovation happening at once, different than what happened in the late 90s and early 2000s. It's all this innovation happening at once. For those that are interested in entrepreneurship out there, how do you play that? How do you, how do you succeed with everybody's going after the same holy grail? So what, makes you, what will make you successful from a standing out, from standing above the crowd? What are, what are the ingredients to, to be a successful entrepreneur? I mean, I think despite all of the, all of the technology and innovation in all these places, I think ultimately the people that we always bet on at Kleiner, the people that we see be most successful at ERPE are the ones who have a really strong sense of goal and purpose, a really strong sense of self, but the ability to decide about the path and who they need on that path and quickly and flexibly be able to move. And those are not always the same thing. Like arrogance has no place in the success model, right? I mean, Elon Musk, for all that he, he has that aura about it, he made some very, astute moves to take money when he could. 
and move around in this space, and he's yeah. not afraid of being looked at yeah. as putting on a vision that people say that's really crazy, right? I mean, the Hyperloop and all yeah. these things, right? Um, but he makes sure that it is the right people that he's bringing into all these spaces to back up the statement about the future, right? Yeah. And so I think if you're if you're thinking about a space, because you're right, nowadays the um, I used to think at Kleiner like if if someone sent me a prospectus of their idea in the, a week or two I'd get half a dozen others. I'd be like, did you guys have a convention on this subject? You know, and everybody would think theirs was the, the new. And so you you that is that's always true and it's more true now. So I think in order to stand out, you have to talk about what's the idea, why is it important, who has validated it for you, and then what you're going to do with, with what you're asking for, your funding and all those things, more important than ever, and do it in a succinct manner. That's, I don't know, you've been successful in, a, in well, some, so yeah, no, here. But, but you have a much greater vision or experience in dealing with, with um, a larger collection of parties coming to you. Um, so I, I'd say, so I'm doing a lot of um, mentoring of, of startups in the DC area right now. Um, and that's likely my future uh, in my next step of my life, you know, going back again into that field. So I'd say, I, I'd echo what you said. Um, number one, um, the people you surround yourself with. Don't partner with people that just want to get rich. Um, those are the worst kind of people because they're going to jump ship the first moment. Some are we talking politics? Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> We're describing somebody for a second. No, no. But but think about think about think about like if you have a really wonderful startup idea, really wonderful, right? And you've validated it, and you've 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 done a lot of market, not only market analysis, but like talking to real people, and you've been working on a. Think of, a, of an application. You've been working on a prototype, and you've been testing it and retesting it. It's an alpha, now it's in beta. And all of a sudden, you go to enter venture capital firm name here, tons in this town. Uh, and they say, thanks, but no thanks. Not right now. We're not ready. Come back in six months when you have 150,000 users. Because the key is the number of users. And you're still in beta. We don't care right now if you're making money or not. It's the users. That person that thought they were going to get rich and everything was going to be amazing, is probably going to jump ship. They're going to say, ah, I'm going on to the next person. What you want is people that really bought into the vision and are willing to take hits along the road. Second, um, if when you talk about sales pitch and things of that nature, the ones that, uh, you know, slide three talk about the hockey stick, about the, we start here and immediately the moment your money comes in, we go here. Stop. That's not going to happen. Uh, it rarely happens, okay? Um, try to sell them on the value of the proposition, on the disruption of the proposition, on the market that you've identified, on the core talent that you've brought together, right, and the execution. That's, that's some of the most important things, right? Don't, don't pretend to know what the finances are going to be when you have no idea how the market's going to react. So I, I think that's, that's two points so that... Humility, knowing weaknesses, having the ability, like I said, you take money from somebody, you gotta have the ability to work with people. So kind of the soft skills are equally important to the hard skills. And yeah. be ready to be replaced. Yeah. Be ready to be replaced because right. 
just because you created that venture doesn't mean that you're the best person to run it. Yeah, yeah the scaling, the scaling yeah. issue. Well, the whole is, idea is, of knowing, yeah, knowing what your strengths are, right? I mean, right. I've seen things fail because a founder held on too long, right? Yeah. Or I've had phone calls. Yeah. Would you want to come in and be the COO for this company? The founders got this idea and they've been moving it forward and they can still run it, but they need an operating person. Yeah. And I was like, that is such a flag, such a flag, yeah. because it means the founder will not let go yeah. at a moment of which they are not able to carry the company forward. And that's that's Amen. bad number two Amen. position to take. Amen. Bad, bad, bad. Yeah. Bad, bad, bad. Bad, bad, bad. No, it's, uh, you're, it's, you're absolutely right. So, I was like, if they won't let me run it and be the CTO or whatever it is, then we've probably got an idea that's not going to make it. And a year later, when I get the call for that same company for the same position, i like, hmm. 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 Um, <laughs> we have a lot of smart people in the United States. Um, how do governments, and this is, one, this is one last question and I want to open it up for, yeah, so start for questions. Um, so how does the administration or how do government people, leaders, right, we've led programs, how do we get input from, uh, from the private sector? And how can the private sector get involved in the government, let's say you don't want to be a career government employee for 35 years, what are the options for people, young people, older folks, whatever, to not only get involved with the government and maybe do a stint in the government, and if they don't want to do that, to provide input to folks that have the ability to affect policy, regulations, or statutes? Right. Well, there's a ton of ways, right? I mean, lots of the agencies have internships. If you're like, like RPE has intern, we would take five or six fellows in the summer. Actually, we take them all the time because we're sort of flexible. You can, we take both technical and, um, and tech to market kind of fellows. Um, we don't do policy or we're too small. Um, we have actual full year, multi-year fellowships, like what come for a couple years um, type of thing. And there are some agencies, including ours and bits and bobs inside DOE, where you have special hiring authority where you can be hired for a certain amount of time with a certain skill set to come in. And in our case, it's three years. You could hire anybody with um, anything from a technical skill to a, if they had MBAs or law to come in for three years. Where can they go? USAjobs.gov. USAjobs. Or if there's an agency when you've met somebody, like you can apply. Because we have special hiring, we have it both on USAjobs constantly. But you can go right to the website and apply at, at um, what is it, rpe.energy.gov, I think is RPEs. So there's, but that's a number of ways. And then I think like in the case of providing input about areas of interest, we hold all kinds of workshops. We have workshops for a technical subject. Um, we'll ask about market adoption of a thing. Even if we're doing crazy stuff like plant phenotyping, we'll have community discussions about how and why this might, you might be interested in this from a food, a food and, and energy perspective. Um, so if you're interested in a particular slice, the web, I think the web uh, newsletters and web communication of agencies is getting a lot better. So it'll say, hey, if you want to be involved in this, click here, and it's not a, not a, not a spoof um, to get involved. So the Federal Register, yep. uh, advance notice for proposed rulemakings yeah, and PRMs, if yep. you care about Comment. anything, you know, and I, I, I personally yep. use this when I was yep. making changes to, the, to, to one the of my register. programs, and I read, I mean, we got maybe a couple hundred, and I read them all. Yep. I actually, yeah, they get, yeah. the people that care, not to say that I, I did care, I read them all, and a lot of the suggestions were crazy. Some of them were applicable, and they got in. So yep. we listen. 
Um, Javier, you were involved in starting or helping to think through the president management fellow. There's also president innovation fellows. Yeah. There's these, there's all these things to bring in young people yeah. into really cool rotational programs in the government. Can you explain quickly how they work, where they can sure. go to figure it out? Sure. So. Um, as previously mentioned, there are internships that each individual um, department offers. Um, and then there is a, I think for people in this room, some of the most applicable uh, programs are the Presidential Management Fellows Program. Um, I don't want to take more time, but you know that you should look that up. Uh, the Presidential Innovation Fellows Program, which is relatively new, but probably the most powerful fellows program in government right now. We get on average, you know, 3,500 to 5,000 applications, and out of those, you know, the the fellows program um, heads select maybe 50 to 70 people. It's highly competitive, but it's really, really right. great. And you don't just have to be a technologist. Right. Uh, you just have to be, you know, if you believe that you're highly inventive or, you know, an idea person or someone with specific, a, a unique set of skills, like the movie Taken, uh, then. Uh, then you can, uh, you should definitely um, apply. Then there's a career pathways program. You should look that one up through the Department of Labor career pathways. It's wonderful if you're in between educational uh, phases, going from undergrad to graduate, or planning on going to graduate in the next six months to a year. You can you can apply. You can participate, and it's a limited time engagement. All these are limited time engagements. You can comment. Um, or you can just reach out to us. It's very easy to get a hold of, of high-level government people or mid-level government people. You literally, just have to either send an email, or ask for the person, and it's our duty to answer. So um, we'll answer. It's, it's, it'd be much harder if I'd be in the commercial side, or, and then you call me because I'd be like, I have. I, I, yeah. It's not my responsibility to answer your call, but being a public servant, it is. It so is. I, I answer your calls. And with that, uh, we are extremely happy and open to take any questions, concerns, comments, snipe comments, tomatoes, eggs, anything you want to throw at us. We missed something, so please feel free to uh, uh, ask away if you have anything, please. Yes, ma'am. I think uh, I, I think I think I'll, I'll grab that one. It's about yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's about So uh, the question is, um, what is the government doing to enable uh, all the activities happening in fintech? With a very good comment that uh, some countries, especially the UK, are way ahead of the game in terms of getting behind all these things. So um, fintech is an area that is seeing a significant amount of both innovation and disruption, um, and it's big, right? When people, some people think about fintech, they think about cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin. Some people think about peer-to-peer uh, -peer lenders or small business lenders like Lendi or Kiva. Some people think about uh, PayPal, right? Remittances. So it's a very broad uh, sector. It also touches 
and think about it, the world has about $200 trillion of investable assets. And the DTCC clears about $24 quadrillion of trades a year. It's a very, very big industry. So what is the federal government doing? Um, there are two basic camps. One is the incumbents, right? The banks themselves that have been in many ways innovators of things like ATMs and all these things that we take for granted, they were actually huge innovations to before, uh, mobile banking and all these things. And then you have people that view themselves as disruptors. So I can tell you, having been in, when I was inside until a few months ago, I was in the White House FinTech uh, Council, which involved the SEC, Council of Economic Advisors, Treasury. Um, there is a lot of thought right now being given to how and what the role of government should be because regu regulatory, um, regulatory constructs uh, will impede and or enable fintech to grow or contract, right? If, if a bank like fill in the blank of the many ones headquartered here in this beautiful island, um, if they're able to borrow from the Fed at zero and there's a fintech lender that doesn't have the access to the prime dollars because they're not regulated by the FDIC and all this stuff, they're at a disadvantage, so they have to lend at a higher rate and all these things. So there is right now, that's a very long answer, non-answer, and I think that there are pockets that know exactly what they want to do. Like the SEC passing Title III of the Jobs Act, AKA crowdfunding. Very exciting thing. I was peripherally involved because I was advising the chairwoman on it, but a very small slice. There's, I can say that there's the cohesive overall perspective is not yet fully done. I can tell you that anything that has to do with innovation, especially capital access innovation, especially for small businesses, because capital is concentrated, is very good. So there's a lot of activity happening right now. Yes, sir, in the back. Uh, Alex Merle. I work, I'm an attorney. I work in intellectual property. Uh, this panel, in a lot of respects, speaks to me because I'm actually been, I'm moonlighting doing a lot of work in Ukraine that spans all of your areas, right? So entrepreneurship, energy, uh, and labor workforce development. Uh, it's a unique situation because you have an external catalyst, i.e., a war, uh, frankly, with Russia, that is driving change, and it has to drive change in all of those areas. So it presents an opportunity jumpstart and get a really advanced, uh, or I guess leapfrog is probably the better word, a lot of the issues that you face here. Because, well, the question is, yeah, the, the ROI on this uh, piece of alternative energy equipment is maybe five years, but that's not the only calculus. The calculus is also you have to stop using Russian gas. Uh, and you need to install these systems now so you have an opportunity to do things quickly in workforce development. So uh, I'm working with the deputy head of the presidential administration there in Russian PO, which is down uh, seeing him recently uh, on a trip to the US. And I'd love to There's a lot going on there, and it really needs Western support because this isn't just the Ukrainian issue, and it's definitely not just the European problem, it's a global problem. Uh, but it's also an opportunity to really reshape a part of the world that's, that's critically important for the future of the West. So your it was most mostly a comment. It was a comment. It was a it was a good comment, basically. So I know, and I'm going to repeat it for the benefit yeah. of, the, of the people that are going to watch this uh, on tape, is that um, in any kind of government investment, especially the leader of the free world, there's always a connection with national security uh, 
and uh, and foreign policy is that part of the is that part of the calculus? You self answered as yes. Energy is a big thing. Obviously, we want to clean the environment, but also it weans us off of foreign oil and all this stuff. So yeah, the answer that you yourself said is yes and yes. Yeah, sure. And yes. I think that's partly the exciting piece around everything from like the energy ministerial that's happening in the United States at the end of May or June, mm -hmm. right, where the ministers come together and they try to look at that that additional calculus and where and how certain policy or you know helping is going to make a bigger difference. It's also part of like rolling out of a cop again that the calculus of where does the money go if all this money flows? Does it just go to the places that already have the money? And right. I think that it, the answer is no, that you know, they're, they're trying to be smart about where do you need workforce development in order to even leverage the existing technology in so that it can move you know, these, these other countries forward. So I think it's um, well on all of their minds and certainly a part of the calculus. And, and when you're given workforce development money many times and you don't have a whole lot of experience with it, you don't know how to use it, how to use it effectively, how to evaluate its impact, um, <clears throat> and how to repeat it across different areas and, you know, and when we're talking about other or foreign countries. So that's an issue as well. I, I saw a hand in the back. take a, a first a first crack sure, at it yeah, so yeah. Um, 10,000 people are retiring every day oh sorry yes so uh, the the lady that just asked the question is the CEO of a health care uh, company uh, health tech company focused on the silver tsunami which is essentially 10,000 baby boomers retiring it every day for the next 10 years it's a very very large amount of people requiring a large amount of services that are going to transfer trillions in wealth. It's a significant. And your question is, well, it's massive. The government must be doing stuff other than Medicare and Social Security, right? Because we're talking about uh, older populations. So how can you partner with the government uh, to get your startup to do more, more things? I mean, it can be everything from uh, uh, the Social Security Administration talking to people there uh, to have seminar, you know, webinars, seminars. Um, it could be you're a health tech uh, company, so there's all kinds of uh, things happening right now. Data.gov, in terms of how you get access to all this data, and the, the, not all the agencies have all the data up there, but 
the majority of them do, and they're structured in a particular way that's accessible by anybody. Um, you also have the ability to, there's all these pockets of, innovation. I mean, everybody approaches it differently in terms of you know, innovation ecosystems, accelerators, and all these things um, uh, that have been funded by the government, and they are by, by contract or by prize uh, required to help people access resources. Um, SBA, for example, I mean, closer to home, SBDCs, Small Business Development, companies that we fund, there's 200 of them around the country, uh, the 138 accelerators that we funded, um, Commerce, Department of Commerce has something very similar, the I-6. So there's all kinds of interesting ways to engage. I don't know if you yeah. guys have a... Yeah, I mean, I think the tricky thing with it is, you know, not, without knowing exactly the thing you're looking for, right? Like, you know, yeah, HHS has a, has a number of, yes, of you know, do. innovation folks, exactly like the type of role you have. Mm -hmm. yep. So I think, I think we could help connect you to who to ask the more specific question, but I do think if you're looking for funding for things, you can look at their grants, especially their SBIR type of grants. Um, if it's earlier stage than that, I think NIH mm -hmm. um, ha certainly has a big focus there with some of those. So um, I think it's a matter a little bit more of specifying, and then um, you know certainly grabbing any of us, we can introduce you to who we know um, to get more specifically into it. The, uh, the data, as Javier mentioned, you can go to data.gov yeah. and you can, and there's a healthcare data uh, community practice. There's also a, a health data um, uh, initiative that former CTO Todd Park started and got spun off and now it's part, it's, it's, it's own, it's, it's self-sustaining, yeah. right? So it's uh, called a health data initiative or uh, something like that. Um, HHS has their Dynamic Ventures program. They have an innovation lab that's mostly internal facing, but they also have, they, they collaborate with folks outside of the federal government, and then they have another uh, program called HHS Ignite, which is yeah. its, its own program internally to fund really great ideas. Um, take a look at the data that exists. They probably, they, I believe they also have a developer portal. We have at Labor Developer Portal for anyone that wants to use it, developer.dol.gov. And, and if they fo uh, follow the same model that we follow, they have APIs and sample code and SDKs for multiple uh, multiple platforms. And I'm pretty sure HHS has done that. Um, I, I, I believe pre uh, under previous leadership by Brian Sevak and company, so uh, their former CTO. So take a close look. There's a lot of wealth there. And if not, like I previously said, you'd be surprised. Just give them a call. If you pay taxes, that's a trick question because all of you pay taxes. <laughs> you are paying for this. Yeah. Use it. Yeah. It brain sometimes it brain damage because the websites <laughs> suck. <laughs> and uh, except for mine. Not except for yours. Except, except for, for yours. Yeah, except for hey, yours. Take a look at mine. It's really pretty. Well, listen, listen. <laughs> I, I didn't know half of the stuff that I learned in the last two years. The resources are mind-boggling. You have to do the work. But if you maneuver it right, it's in, the beauty is that it's available to everybody. There's no inherent institutional. Uh, There's no intentional impediment. Thank you. <laughs> you you've, had, you've had your pencil up for a time. I don't know if you're holding up the pencil. You have a question. I have a good question. Go for it. Uh, yeah, my name's Jeff Wallace. Uh, I'm the CTO and CEO of of an artificial intelligence and virtual reality startup. Really commercial, I think, mean, some technology. Was developed under the, the old fashioned way we government employed to start off my career at Army Research Lab and the research lab. 
My question uh, is, we're part of a movement in, in the DOD and, and you know, that kind of end of the world of new contracting methods and ways of bringing new performers in, right? You, mm -hmm. you keep asking the same question the same group of people to get the same answers, right? So uh, we've been part of the other transaction authority yep. movement. I was curious as to, you know, was this infecting other parts of the government or, or, or what? Yes. The answer is yes. I mean, look, DOD as the largest, huh? Question. Oh, the question. Uh, there's something called other, the other movement, which involves contracting with the called private sector, transaction other transaction authorities. Uh, and in terms of magnitude, uh, you're talking about the government is the biggest procurer of things and services. It's $400 billion a year, give or take. And uh, they are mandated to use 23% of that for small businesses, so 90 some billion dollars. I'm kind of adding now to your question. And uh, to get those dollars are, is very difficult, especially with DOD because of sole, sole contract authority, and usually you're the sub of a sub of a sub. So very difficult to attain the contracts. The answer is yes, and, there, and, and uh, in fact, I wouldn't use the word infect, infecting other part of government. I think that um, any ability for a the government is a large entity to put money to work more effectively for the taxpayer is good. So DOD happens to be the largest department in the federal government with the largest part of the budget. They're the biggest buyer of things themselves. So yes, if they are hammering away in this movement, uh, adoption does uh, take place. And there's been a lot of conversation. RPE has. Uh, you know, other transaction authority as well. Um, we used it to actually put our contracts out. They're cooperative agreements versus straight procurement, which have pros and cons. But um, other parts of DOE have been looking at where and how there's, there's their ability based on, again, it depends on what you're authorized to do, um, to use that, though, with exactly that advantage of how do we move faster to not only procure things, but for innovative things, how to get them some traction, right? Because the worst thing is, because like we, I mean, all this sounds very rosy, and I'm sure you're all like, there's no dark side to any of what, you know, dealing with the government. But the reality is sometimes the processes are slow. And in order to be a small business dealing with the government, there's a certain amount, depending on contract size, of, um, you know, uh, you know your, your financial books and your auditing and, you know, validation of your, um, your, your rates and all those things that has to happen. So, you know, again, you can get help. There's, again, a lot of resources that have now developed to help you do that. I think finding other people who have grants from the same agency that you're getting one from to understand best practices is really important. And also understanding from the time you get a, a grant or even a procurement to when you actually turn over money from that you need to understand what that means in terms of your own financing and, and bridging. So I, I just need to feel, you know, that that caveat's out there um, as you as you try to um, to access um, what I think is a good blend of tools in that space. We're getting the hook. Time for okay. one more question. Or you could rapid fire a couple questions and we'll mash an answer. Is All right. that okay? Yeah, and we're gonna start from this side and work our way this way. Okay. Go ahead, ma'am. One sentence. No commentary. Go ahead. You. Okay. Um, so I'm Yuko. I'm a student here, and I also work for the Japanese government. And we really want to like support entrepreneurs and 
innovation in Japan because we are far behind in terms of that area. But when we ask the entrepreneurs or VC people, then they just say like, just don't bother us or just like government can't help us or something like that. So my question is, how would you, but I'm sure there is some certain needs or certain like, things we can do. So my question is, how would you find such potential real needs in the market and connect to like policy and government policy as a result as, as an answer? So you're helping the Japanese government? I work for Japanese government. You work with the Japanese and government? I really want to have, like, we want to create this policy to support entrepreneurs and I think the question is what you can do to to help so how, like, Japanese how innovators know. get. Uh, not, not, like, I would like to hear your experience, like how to dig in as potential needs and market. Let's take that. Let's take that aside because that's a pretty good. It's yeah. a very good question, but pretty complicated. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. Yes. Yep. You. 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 Yes. You. Uh -huh. um, so I was wondering what tactics and tools you use to get cultural buy-in um, for this innovation when um, the momentum from having administration buy-in isn't enough. Um, quickly answer. Uh, it's uh, someone needs to be the hammer initially. Uh, so uh, you start with a hammer. Uh, you start breaking all the all, all the old concrete. Um, that so. Initially, you start you start uh, in an evangelist role where uh, you're preaching, um, but in a, in a friendly manner, but always with the with a, a little um, a little white uh, note card in your back pocket saying, it, "This, this, this, and that." But this, why? This is what's in it for you. This is always what's in it for you. Change because of what's in it for you. Um, and that in itself helps create buy-in uh, from individuals at the very top and then individuals at the very, very bottom. And uh, there's, there's a healthy bacteria, so that's kind of like that healthy bacteria, you plant those seeds, and then it just slowly but surely, if you do a really good job and you continue in doing that, it takes over uh, by itself. So it has happened. Uh, it's happened with great success across many, many departments, commerce, labor, um, energy, uh, education, um, SBA, uh, Business USA, uh, things like that. So it, 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 it does happen. Yes. Yes. Um, my question is about open government data that's more about uh, related to policies. So I guess the United States is doing an excellent job of providing open government data, but not every country in the other country in the world are as good as in the United States. I guess my central question is, how can they do better? And it's twofold. One is, how can they increase awareness in the private sector to be public private partnership? The other side is, what is the obstacles inside the governments, and what is a good argument for them to move forward with the open government thing? So entrepreneurial diplomacy. Oh, sorry. Um, so uh, the assertion is that the United States has been very good about innovating and very good about uh, uh, letting the data be accessible, but that other countries are not. Uh, some countries do it well, some don't. Yeah. And what can other countries do to make it happen? Look, at the end of the day, it depends on the form of, in, in my view, in the former government. 
I mean, in the case of China, for example, which would be our, uh, our biggest rival, throwing as many resources as they can to innovate and to beat us at our own game and all these very admirable things, at the end of the day, it's a centrally planned economy. It's a, uh, uh, that don't require uh, 535 members of Congress to vote on something, right? So they represent all of the America. So um, I think it has to do with making the business case, just like Javier was answering the question about organizational inertia. Your job is not to convince people about the idea. Your job is to convince them about how the idea is so good for them. So uh, I can tell you that the Europe, the EU specifically, has been adopting a lot of the things that the United States does on data, yeah. on grants for innovative, and there's no pride of ownership. They're doing it because well, they have a big need, because they're behind on innovation, and they're very open about this. Actually, the guy that runs innovation for the EU, I went to grad school with him, and the point is that I think you need leaders that have uh, the ability to not be the, to, to be the jackhammer and to, and to uh, show the business case. One more here. Yeah. I think you have two very distinct and complex questions. We'll take one. Yeah, let's right. leave the patent discussion aside for a second, but let's talk about the non -com You were talking about non-competes. Um, and the question is, how can you, how does the government help people uh, potentially uh, team, up. team up to avoid non-competes? Yeah. Cheryl? <laughs> awesome. They can't, right? I mean, I think that, so I think that there's, I will, I will twist the question to something that I do think is important. So when, when at least RPE and many more agencies now want to put out um, a solicitation for grants, we lead with a teaming list. And we put on the, because we recognize if we really want people to come together who don't ordinarily speak to each other, well, the odds of them knowing each other in the window we give them to apply is pretty low. So we say to the folks here, we're going to put out a, a, a solicitation in um, you know, high efficiency, new fabrics that'll allow you to individually heat and cool people. And we think the people who ought to be involved in this are everybody from biologists to physicists to clothing designers to building engineers. And if you're interested and you think you have a skill, sign up here and people can put their name, and it's a public document, anybody could go look at it. And if I'm a fabric designer and I think, hey, I need you, you're an engineer, I'll call you and say, hey, let's team up. It doesn't eliminate the issue that if you have a non-compete agreement, you can't break that. I mean, that it, 
you know, I think people should be careful what, what kind of non-competes they sign. Yeah. But I think the idea of governments helping by actively encouraging teaming to, to your piece around this, who's surrounded around you is a really strong thing that goes a long way. I'd, I'd be more concerned about um, contributions to intellectual property as opposed to non-competes. Because yeah. a non-compete, if it's a really unfair non-compete, I can go to court and I'm pretty sure that I'll beat you. Uh, if you tell me that I cannot compete in the same space in the next three years. Because some judge is going to say that's, that's, unfair. that's unfair. That's unfair. But if, then, but if I'm contributing to your intellectual property and you're telling me, well, you didn't sign anything. Yeah. And now that belongs to me. I'll take you to court and that absolutely belongs to me. And I'll take a piece of your company. So I think that's probably more important than the non-compete. Actually, on that, so just on the intellectual property piece, um, if this wasn't primarily focused on intellectual property. We did happen to have a conference in June of last year called um, The Future of Urban Innovation, which was uh, we held here at Columbia. And the department, actually, uh, Javier was a, a panelist there as well. But we had um, uh, Secretary Pritzker of the Department of Commerce mm -hmm. and Director awesome. Michelle Lee of the USPTO. Uh, so I hosted a panel discussion with Michelle Lee. And we touched on some of the issues that entrepreneurs would want to know about intellectual property and patents. So, it, there's plenty of videos on intellectual property available, including that one. Actually, the whole day was videotaped uh, for free at techventures.columbia.edu. So if you have questions on intellectual property, feel free to send them our way. And there's, awesome. and there's no better way to wrap up than the intersection of innovation and the law, because this is a nation of laws. So join me in thanking the panelists, and thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. For more information on Columbia Technology Ventures, visit techventures.columbia.edu.